0: This is Richard Zink for the Biopharmaceutical Section of the American Statistical Association. I recently had the opportunity to speak with Stephen Sen at the 2013 Statistician in the Pharmaceutical Industry Annual Meeting in Glasgow, Scotland. We briefly discussed his statistics and medicine paper, Seven Myths of Randomization in Clinical Trials, and his participation at the conference in a frequentist Bayesian debate, this House believes that drug development and regulation should become fully Bayesian. Originally from Switzerland, Stevenson was until recently professor of statistics at the University of Glasgow, a post he has held since 2003. He was professor of pharmaceutical and health statistics at University College London from 1995 until 2003. He has also worked in the Swiss pharmaceutical industry as a lecturer and senior lecturer in Dundee and for the National Health Service in England. He is the author of the monographs, Crossover Trials and Clinical Research, Statistical Issues in Drug Development, Dicing with Death, and over 200 scientific publications. First off, thanks for uh, joining me, Dr. Sen. It's a pleasure. I wanted to ask you first, since we're in the year of statistics, how did you get involved in statistics in the first place?
1: Well, I came from Switzerland to Britain to study, and I wanted to study mathematics, and I was told that my mathematical background was not strong enough. So I looked for a subject that I could um, could be qualified to study, And I found statistics, and originally I studied economics and statistics, didn't get on with the economics. And I did a master's in statistics and computing, didn't get on with the computing. So I decided by process of elimination that I must be a statistician. So that's how I ended up as a statistician.
0: How did you get involved in the pharmaceutical arena?
1: Well, um, first of all, what happened was I worked for the National Health Service in the UK. I worked for them for three years, and I then went to lecture for the Dundee College of Technology, in Scotland, in, in Dundee. And I was a lecturer and then a senior lecturer for them for nine years, but decided I needed a change. Uh, and I had always had a hankering to get back to Switzerland. And of course, Switzerland is a place where there are big pharmaceutical companies. And so I applied to Ciba Geigy, and somewhat to my surprise, they said they would take me. And so that's how I ended up in the pharmaceutical industry.
0: I have a couple questions about the recent paper of statistics in medicine, Seven Myths of Randomization in Clinical Trials. Uh, what brought about that paper?
1: It was hearing um, philosophers, or in particular a philosopher, talk about randomization in clinical trials, and I realized that although some of the things that were being said by philosophers were correct and interesting, many of them were completely wrong. And I then began to worry about the fact that the basic message of randomization was being misunderstood by people who were not statisticians. Uh, And then when I thought about it some more, I came across maybe a couple of things that even statisticians didn't understand properly. So I think out of my seven myths, five are ones that uh, non-statisticians are particularly liable to um, believe, but a couple are ones that statisticians also may believe when they don't really think about it carefully enough. The two that
0: you're referring to are the misconceptions that observed covariates may be ignored uh, when one is randomized and that large trials are more balanced than small ones. Is there a particular failure of statistical training that has led to statisticians believing
1: this? I think that um, statisticians are told that um, randomization analysis makes very few assumptions. Um, And then, unfortunately, what happens is that uh, it tends to be put on a pedestal. And you sometimes hear people referring in voices of awe to the exact test. But um, I think as Jack Good, the, the leading Bayesian statistician pointed out many years ago, for the randomization analysis to be valid sometimes requires us to close our eyes. Because once a particular randomization has taken place, we may have covariate data which enables us to see that the relevant population is not the population of all randomizations, but it's the population of all randomizations that would lead to trials with these particular, this particular pattern of prognostic covariates. And that's one of the points I make with the paper, and I try to prove it to people using a very simple game of chance, where I hope they would agree that they would have to think about this game of chance the way that I say they should, and that then leads them on to think about covariates, I hope, in the same way. In your book, Statistical Issues in Drug Development, You discussed some
0: of the historical resistance of randomization, particularly to placebo. Are you surprised that in 2013, we're still discussing the merits of randomization?
1: Yes, I tend to think, again, there the ethical situation has been misunderstood. If you have a look at uh, a a condition like AIDS or HIV infection, there you will find that nearly all the trials that have been run have been placebo-controlled trials, simply because the way in which um, therapy has progressed is by add-on So what you have typically in a modern HIV trial is that everybody is receiving a combination of three antivirals, and then the new group will have a fourth antiviral, and the control group will have placebo. So again, there are a lot of myths about the way in which placebo is used, and in many cases you can see that in fact it's the only ethical choice, uh, and that, that leaves the door open for randomization.
0: You're participating in a session here at PSI entitled, This House Believes that Drug Development and Regulation Should Become Fully Bayesian. Uh, and Bayesian methods are certainly becoming more acceptable to regulators. Could you give us a brief summary of your views on this topic?
1: Well, I often say to my clients, because I do a lot of consulting for the pharmaceutical industry, that it can be very valuable to think in a Bayesian way, particularly if you personally at a point, are at a point at which you need to make a decision. Um, for example, a go-no-go decision, then there's absolutely no reason not to to do that, and in many ways it's the the best way to look at it. Um, However, it can often be quite difficult to do. That's not an excuse for not trying. But there's a further problem, and that is that actually um, posterior distributions are really of no use to anybody else uh, as a means of summarizing data. They have to be debased, as I put it. You have to subtract the prior from... The posterior to get the likelihood. And so that means that really what one should be doing is trying as much as possible to communicate information in a way which is not subjective, although there are limits to the extent to which one can do this. Um, On the other hand, there are some particular frequentist habits that I don't regard as being very sensible. For instance, I don't usually regard stopping rules in clinical trials as being very important as regards the evidence. Again, they may have some importance as regards a particular local decision you want to take, but as regards summarizing the evidence, I don't actually think that stocking rules are very important.
0: Any advice for the next generation of statisticians?
1: Yes. I would say that uh, we need to go back to basics in a way. We need to concentrate on a number of important things which are being ignored at the moment. One of them, I would say, is measurement. There is a great deal of efficiency lost through using... Um, stupid measures or to put it another way inefficiency creeps in through using silly measures and so statisticians should think a lot more about the sort of measurements that are being used in clinical trials Um, a particular bugbear of mine is responder analysis whereby you compare an outcome value to a baseline uh, simply constructing the difference that's already a mistake And then what you do is you dichotomize it according to some arbitrary threshold, like a reduction of 10 millimeters mercury in diastolic blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And this leads to an incredible loss of efficiency. And I think it's ironic that um, with all of the FDA initiatives that we have regarding efficiency in clinical trials, they're looking at something which is relatively unimportant, which is flexible design and missing something which is really important, which is the way in which you measure patients. And that leads on to another thing, which is components of variation. Statisticians should think very carefully about separating main effect of treatment, uh, the main effect of the patient, the fact that patients vary from one patient to another, the interactive effect, the fact that treatments can have different effects on different patients, which is essentially what the whole of the supposed pharmacogenetic revolution is about, and pure within-patient error. And that's four different components of variation, and it can take a lot of work to separate them. And currently, what people are doing is they're just looking at the data and they imagine that they see individual response to treatment, and in many cases, it's probably not, not so.
0: Well, thanks. I appreciate your time here. It's a pleasure.